Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Landing America. I'm your host, Vincent Miller, and let's get right into things today. Just as a bit of a preface, one, we are not going to be going quite as long as usual just due to constraints, but two, the stories are going to be less horrifying, for lack of a better word. I've decided for this episode, as the last two episodes have focused largely on very depressive and very poignant racial topics that I do think need to be explored and discussed, but at the risk of sounding a little too repetitive, I'm not going to be covering the tragedies that have gone over the last week or so, and I'm sure we will have to touch on them next week, but I needed a bit of a break. So just for a bit of aforementioned break, I think it's it's important that we focus on other issues that are no less important, mind you, but do not believe that I have forgotten or overlooked any stories I have. I have noticed them all. And we will likely be covering them all next week. But this week, we're going to focus on more international issues and more issues that are are less, not heavy, but certainly less racially charged and a lot less soul crushing. So we're going to jump right into those. Our first story today is going to be about Russian sanctions. They were announced just recently over the SolarWinds breach, which was what prompted the issue. This, of course, was the breach back during Trump's era back in, I believe, 2019 or 2018, where Russia had infiltrated a large scope of international and more poignantly national efforts to either defend or regarding the election. This, of course, did also target the United States in their 2020 election and did show, and there are claims that Vladimir Putin had given the green light to influence the election in favor of Donald Trump with whatever resources allocated to this effort were given by the Russian government. This, of course, is somewhat consistent natural. It is somewhat considered acceptable in the international community that there will be breaches from other countries, that there will be pseudo spy operations in the modern age using digital breaches and whatnot. That is somewhat accepted, not looked favorably upon, but it is accepted. There's not much you can do. However, this time, Vladimir Putin apparently has gone too far in his targeting of democracy. And Joe Biden believes that it is important that due to the focus of the breach and the scale of the breach, which was notably large than any before. These intrusions, though, as recently said, not uncommon, they are important. They do threaten the United States and more importantly, the security of our elections within the United States, the integrity of those elections, which are of utmost importance. They are very on the list of things that I have personally. I believe democracy is very close to the top uh, right next to health care and, and, and the, the care welfare of the citizens themselves. The United States, of course, has now taken international actions and has largely focused on the economic sanctions of borrowing money. It has actively punished about 30 Russian operatives that it believes are abusing or very reliant on borrowing money in a lot of international banks, a lot of international circles, which have now been shut down to them due to the United States. This also was coincided with about 10 Russian officials being expelled from United States official buildings, which was retaliated against, of course, by a similar action of economic sanctions and 10 U.S. operatives leaving the Kremlin. This, of course, is to be expected, and it is retribution, though it is important to note that Joe Biden himself claimed that this was the lesser of many options they had. They chose to preserve, quote unquote, international stability and chose a path of non-confrontation with this action, which is interesting to think that Joe Biden may have even gone further than this in maybe an alternate timeline where perhaps they had taken a more drastic measures, which would have been perhaps better, perhaps worse. I mean, obviously, that's impossible to tell. Hindsight is the only thing that is 2020, though, in my opinion, this was the right way to go. I am glad to see a nonviolent yet somewhat punitive and and somewhat 
confrontational approach being taken. I'm I'm glad to see it. And I'm especially glad to see that Russia isn't allowed to just walk over the United States as they were previously. Not that I have a personal vendetta against Russia, or I think they are our number one geopolitical threat on the stage right now. I do believe that to be China, no doubt. However, it is good to see this sort of responsible take on action by Joe Biden and the Biden administration without overstepping their role as mediators here and not going all out nuclear, trying to push some sort of Iran deal on Russia, as we may have seen in the Obama Biden era. That, of course, is sort of what this presidency is supposed to be a continuation of. So I was pleasantly surprised by the uh, the, the culmination of events. Our second story today is going to be what I would consider a brief overview of what everyone already assumed, everyone already sort of knew. A new New York Times vaccination report has been brought out, which shows a direct correlation between skepticism of the vaccine and support for Donald Trump. Ergo, a link between conservatism and a distinct lack of trust for medicine. That is interesting, of course, though not to many people who are paying attention, as, of course, Donald Trump and Republicans have for a long time now been pushing anti-COVID, anti-vax, anti-mask conspiracy theories that will obviously propagate anti-vaccination hysteria on the right, which is obviously horrible. But it is honestly a bit scary to look at the scale here in this report. Almost one in every 20 Democrats believe they are not going to get the vaccine. They say they're skeptical of the vaccine, while almost half of Republicans say that they do not plan on getting the vaccine, which is insane to me, as one in 20 is certainly not a negligible amount. That is a certain amount of people that I think is a bit saddening to see one in 20 Democrats, though that is within the amount of people in society that I would say are naturally skeptical of government and is somewhat understandable. However, that's not defending their actions, by the way. It is simply saying that seems somewhat reasonable. I think there are enough crazy people out there or enough people skeptical of science out there that would fall into Democrat and Republican camps, where if you told me that one out of 20 of either party would not get the vaccine, I would understand. That's That seems logical to me. However, one half of Republicans, not, not, not saying they're skeptical, like the one out of 20 on the Democratic side, these are people that are saying they will not get the vaccine no matter what. They've already decided this. About half of Republicans have apparently claimed that they're not going to get the shot, which is just absurd. States such as Wyoming and Iowa are now claiming that they're receiving too many doses more than needed due to a lack of desire in their communities. A lot of vaccines, of course, are are needed all across the country, uh, very poignantly in Michigan, where cases are surging and people are desperate for a vaccination. But of course, they cannot get it as they're being distributed on per capita basis, which is the logical way to go about these things. But of course, some states don't use a per capita amount of vaccines. They, of course, are going unused in freezers in Wyoming and Iowa because people just won't get them. It causes serious problems for vaccination rollout. And logistically, there's not much you can do because you only know these things after the fact. And now, of course, I'm sure they'll start allocating more to places that are still consuming them at the same rate or higher rates, like in Michigan, versus places like Iowa and Wyoming that are drastically lower than the average. However, it's just a very concerning thought, and and it's honestly a, a very saddening thought, though it is just confirming what everyone believes, I think. I mean, it, it does seem to show that Republicans and, and Trump supporters are not fans of the vaccine, though something made me laugh today because I did recall 
that Donald Trump was the one who was hyping up the vaccine. If you recall, he got the vaccine and was one of the first to do so. Not only that, but he was also one of the people who was out there claiming that his Operation Warp Speed would be able to get everybody the vaccine many years quicker than naturally would be. So it's just interesting to think that it may be in an alternate timeline if Donald Trump had won and pushed the vaccine as it's in the government's own interest, which would be, of course, his own ratings at the time. I wonder how many people would be getting the vaccine and how many people would be still stuck in a QAnon conservative circle where they're afraid of getting the microchip put into them by Bill Gates. So it is a wondering, an interesting thought for sure, though I I truly don't know if there's any validity to that theory. And quite honestly, I can't back it up, but it is an interesting thought experiment nonetheless. And our last story today is going to be about the Supreme Court, where the Democrats are reportedly preparing a bill to increase the court's justices by four, which would bring it from nine to 13. This, of course, would directly fly in the face of any sort of semblance of any sort of political inclusion and cohesion, as, of course, this would just escalate every single term. And it seems like the absolute worst of both worlds here. Now, it is understood that executive actions have been going up ever since they gained in popularity in the early 2000s under Bush and even previously back way back with Clinton and such. So, of course, executive actions have been increasing every single president and actually every single term of each president. So that is a a logical conclusion of that power dynamic, where if you give someone the power to do so, if you give someone the power to fly in the face of democracy and to ignore precedent, then they will do so, regardless of whose side they're on. And of course, all of this action ends up emboldening the federal government and essentially just starts decreasing the need for democratic processes because it is removing the need for democracy, right? You've got the executive actions being used to bypass the Senate or legislative branch. And this is essentially what you're doing when you add justices to the Supreme Court. Because what happens when you add four liberal justices to the Supreme Court and then the next president is a Republican and he adds four more Republican justices to the Supreme Court? And then what happens after that when you add four more with the next term and then four more with the next and then they say, you know what, just make it 20 next term or 30 the one after that. It's not a slippery slope fallacy as we've seen it been done in another very similar government institution as in the executive branch's use of executive orders, and I would consider far over use of executive orders. But if you look at this now, you see Joe Biden attempting to directly fly against all precedent in order to gain very short-sighted and very short-term political gains. I don't understand. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and I think it's a bit of a dud. It's not a good proposal at all. I do understand what they're doing, but all it does is increase political partisanship, and it doesn't help with non-escalation, especially as a president who's claiming to be a centrist, who's claiming to be the person who is going to bring both sides together, as he very recently did reach 59% approval ratings, which you can argue is still the honeymoon phase, or you can argue is because his predecessor was universally hated amongst the media, which led to a lower approval rating of himself. You could argue all these things, all of the contrasts and and precedent doesn't matter to me because in my mind, in my eyes, I look at this and I say, this is a terrible idea for the next 50 years. This isn't just 
one man's four year term who's going to either affect his, you know, approval rating in a positive or negative light. It's not going to stop him from passing anything or allow him to pass anything. This is going to cause issues for the next five decades, at least if this goes through. And I am staunchly opposed to it, not from a constitutional purist point of view, just from a political partisanship point of view. This is not going to help anybody. In fact, I have a solution that I'm going to very shortly present that I think is it going to establish exactly what Joe Biden wants to establish by making the Supreme Court less of a polarized issue, by making it not so much of a do or die last stand situation, while also allowing some more fluidity of power with either justices reflexively fixing things or the court of public opinion being able to shift a Overton window in one way or another, allowing for the Supreme Court to move forward on certain issues that they do tend to stagnate on. This, of course, I think is the universally better version of what is going to be proposed, and that is instead of adding justices to a Supreme Court, which would inevitably lead to an arms race on both sides of who can add more justices first, I believe that we should put term limits on the justices not to make this an election and not to allow them to have a re-election. However, I do not believe it should be a lifetime appointment. The whole reason the Supreme Court is so vaunted is because once you put a 50-year-old on there, they're there until they die at 94, absolutely refusing to give up their position because it very well may lead to the other side gaining another 30-year term justice. This is an untenable and insecure way of treating one of the highest offices in the United States, and I think it's absolutely ridiculous that this is still the way we run things on the Supreme Court. I believe that there are many Supreme Court justices, past and present, who agree with me. I believe that if you add a 12 or even 20 or 5 or 15, I'm not here for the minutiae, but I believe somewhere around 8 to 12 years as a Supreme Court justice would allow for justices to be proposed and it wouldn't make their confirmation into such a political wreck that it always happens to be as it has been for the past 10 years. Instead of making it such an issue, you would be put there for eight years and that is as long as a two-term president. So it is no longer than their president is able to carry on the party's mission. If you make it 12, then it's a little bit longer, but again, still in the same scope. Then in that case, you could have nine justices, but instead of someone like Kavanaugh in his 50s being appointed and then there for life, you would have Kavanaugh appointed and then there for as long as Trump is, or as we've seen, maybe a little bit longer. However, he wouldn't be there forever. There would be no need to be up in arms with his appointment. It would be natural government moving the, the way it should be. It would be the president, as described in this constitution, the executive branch, appointing the justice, and then that justice serving a term where they are using their constitutional expertise to deliberate on exactly what the justices should on the highest court cases in the land. And that is what the office should be. It should be nonpartisan. It should be nonpolitical. It should be a, a group of experts, a think tank, if you will. That's all it always has been, a think tank of people who have constitutional scholars who believe that they know best and they very well are possibly the best as they have rigorous training and very impressive resumes, uh, they should be those experts, but they shouldn't be beholden to their own parties. 
they shouldn't be beholden to the man that or woman that puts them there. And it's a bit ridiculous that they still are so intrinsically tied to the parties that they are put on. Being a conservative or liberal justice defines the the next three decades of politics, and it's a bit ridiculous. I think it it needs to end. And increasing the number of people that we have to fight over is not the way to go. It is actually exactly the opposite. Not only that, but it also flies in the face of the Constitution. Not that I believe it is not a living document and cannot be changed, but it hasn't been changed up until this point. And not to say it's worked perfectly. However, for a long time, Supreme Court justices did retire in their 60s and 70s as they would be appointed a little bit earlier before life expectancy began to rise. So these things, as you can imagine, have only gotten worse with the increasing life expectancy and having these justices struggle in their old age to keep the positions. I think the quickest way, as previously described, is just to make it not a lifetime appointment and to basically pull the plug on the uh, the pressure valve and release all that pressure and decrease the political polarization. It would decrease the polarization. It would decrease the political climate. There would be no Kavanaugh hearing. There would be no Amy Comey Barrett hearing. There would be no Merrick Garland hearing. There, it, none of this. None of these things would be problems. And these things, while they would be headlines and important, they wouldn't be world-ending occurrences that ruin the next 30 years of politics. But hey, that's just my two cents. Thank you for listening through to the end. We'd really appreciate it if you check us out at Aligning America on Instagram and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed it and want more content like this, be sure to head over to our Patreon to ensure we can keep putting out episodes, changing hearts and minds one podcast at a time. Thank you.